On October 31st, 1517, a German monk and professor named Martin Luther nailed his infamous 95 Thesis to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, hoping that someone would debate him on the unbiblical practice of selling indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church sold indulgences, promising people that if they would purchase them, their loved ones would be released from purgatory sooner rather than later. Luther didn't get his wish for the debate immediately, but his time would come. Martin Luther was raised in a mining family. He didn't grow up poor, uh, but he would often refer to himself as a peasant later on in life as he celebrated being one of the most uh, famous people in Germany, yet with humble beginnings. He both worked, his father both worked and owned a mine in a small mining community, and his dad didn't want his young son Luther uh, to grow up to be a miner, and so he insisted that he become a lawyer instead. So he sent his son off to school where Luther excelled. His father believed that he could read, he could write, and um, so he should become a lawyer because it would be a fine profession. It would also provide a way for Martin to care for his father and mother later on in life. God, however, would change his plans. At the age of 15, Martin was traveling on foot when a strong thunderstorm came in, and uh, Luther became so scared that he screamed out to St. Anna, God, save me, and I promise you I will become a monk and serve you for the rest of my life. He did this because he thought he was going to die, and he thought St. Anna, who was the patron saints of minors at the time, could save him. Well, Luther survived the storm, and so he told his father that he was going to become a monk. His father did not like this and reminded uh, his young Martin uh, that he should obey his parents. I remember in Birmingham, while I was a youth pastor there, getting a call from a father uh, who was concerned because his 17-year-old son had come and uh, told me that he wanted to go into ministry and had told his father the same thing. His father on the phone with me said, um, you don't understand, Pastor. My, my son has a lot of potential. He's very smart. He's going to be an engineer. He uh, could earn a lot of money, and um, he won't be able to earn a whole lot of money um, if he becomes a pastor. I'm just not sure it's a good profession to be in. He said, no offense, Pastor. <laughs> None taken. Um, right? Well, Martin Luther was unconvinced by his father, and he said that he was going to keep the promise that he made during the storm. So Luther became a monk, he became a priest, a professor, and he took everything he did very seriously. Later on in life, Luther and those who followed him would make the phrase solo de gloria infamous. It means to God alone be the glory. Luther believed everything people do should bring glory to God. His teaching would encourage everyone to see their vocations as something given to you by God, and that all of your life exists so that you might bring glory to God. Luther would teach things like, do you realize in the Lord's Prayer that we pray for our daily bread? Therefore, the bread maker is important, and what the bread maker does is important. I know we used to have bread delivery men in the church here. 
Your job is important. What you do is important. You have been set aside by God to work for God and to bring glory to God. This is why one of the reasons that we here at our church encourage everybody to live with purpose and be set in motion to make a difference in this world. It's the people like Luther who brought this out and kind of rediscovered this and taught this um, is one of the reasons that we are able to do this and teach this. Luther took his job so seriously as he thought everything should be done with the glory of God. As a priest, he believed that priests should practice what they preach. He prayed seven times a day. He went to confession often. He actually went to confession so often that his confessor and priest told him this. He said, Martin, either sin a really big sin that is worth confessing or stop bothering me with all of your small sins. Uh, To the young Martin Luther who went to confession so often, he did this because he was tortured by his conscience and the righteous requirements of God. He could not understand how a perfect God who calls us to be perfect could love us. For Luther... God was like a demanding and angry father that always wanted more from his son who could not deliver. This put an admitted strain on Luther's relationship with God because he feared that he was never good enough to be loved by God. He believed God was constantly angry with him. After his confessor figured this out, his confessor once again told Luther this. He said, Martin, it it is not that God is angry with you, but that you are angry with God. His priest was right. Luther grew to hate God because he believed that he could never live up to God's standard. He was very aware of the perfect justice of God, but did not understand the love of God early on in his ministry or life. Luther was a great student of Greek, Latin, and German. Later on in life, he would have a rabbi teach him Hebrew so that he could translate the Old Testament into German from the Hebrew. He was so methodical about the way he conducted Mass because he believed that when you came to Mass, when you came to a church service, that you were coming into the presence of God. In 1510, he traveled 1,100 miles by foot to Rome. He was sent to Rome on a diplomatic mission to mediate between a dispute between two different monks. And Luther did not appreciate the Alps like you or I might who get to drive through them or fly over them, or maybe ski on them, or ride a train through them. They were rugged, they were cold, and they were harsh. But he believed that he was on a mission from God on behalf of the church. He arrived in Rome, and he climbed the 26 steps, or 28 steps, of the Scala Sancta, on his knees, repeating, Our Father, with each step up the steps. Luther crawled up the steps on his knees to earn merits for his grandfather, who he believed was in purgatory. Tradition has it that these steps um, were the steps that Jesus climbed on his way up to be tried in front of Pontius Pilate, and they had been brought to Rome from Jerusalem. While in Rome, however, Luther became irate with the church. He witnessed priests making people pay for Mass. Further, he noticed the priest in Rome could conduct five masses and the time that Luther could conduct one. The priest, he saw, were making maximum profit. To Luther, the priest in God's holy city were denigrating their calling to be a part of God's church. To him, the church had become a den of robbers. 
I'm sure of images of Jesus walking into the temple and driving out the money changers ran through his head. After having witnessed Rome and being in God's holy city, his dissatisfaction with the indulgences of the church grew and hit a bullying point. You see, indulgences were your way to buy, you could buy your way out of um, purgatory uh, or purchase a loved one's way out. Um, the money was used to buy, uh, the money that was used to buy these indulgences then were transferred over to Rome if they didn't kind of make it into some greedy bishops or uh, priest hands, and they, they were all done for basically to paint the 16th chapel that Michelangelo was doing at that time or to build bigger and larger buildings. The church at this point in history taught this, that you were saved by your baptism, which was done immediately after you were born. And so if you were to have, right over here is my young son, J.T., um, and so to ensure his salvation, um, what we would have done during this time is we would have called a priest in. The priest would have taken JT and he would have baptized him right away because babies died very often at a very young age. And you wanted to ensure that they would make it into heaven. And so you're baptized very quickly so that you can make it into heaven. The problem is, is that if you continue to leave, certain live, certain mortal sins would ruin your baptism. So you needed to do penance. Doing penance meant that you expressed sorrow, um, that you went to confession, and then you asked the priest to absolve you or to forgive you of your sins, to pardon you from your sins. Now, it doesn't, your sin doesn't completely ruin your baptism in the sense of this. You are um, no longer guilty for your sins, so you would go to heaven. However, because you sinned, you would still receive punishment. And because you would still receive punishment, you would have to, after you died, you would go to a place called purgatory. And so if you didn't have enough good works built up that kind of balanced out uh, the bad works that you had, had done, uh, the church taught you spent a time in purgatory um, where you were satisfactorily punished um, for the sins that you had committed um, until basically somebody bought your way out or you earned the merits in purgatory to get out or a saint kindly would give you uh, some of their uh, uh, merits to get out of purgatory. So it was a kind of holding ground for those who weren't quite good enough to make it into heaven but who weren't bad enough to, for hell. It's a place of punishment until their time um, was up. This is actually, if you're wondering, why did Luther crawl on his knees up the steps um, that were in Rome there. It's because Luther was trying to earn merits that his grandfather could get from him so his grandfather could get out of purgatory. Now, this may sound ridiculous uh, to all of you, but I, I do want us to consider this morning the historical backdrop. First, you need to remember that 500 years ago, tomorrow, this is when all of kind of this much of this got started thanks to Luther nailing the 95 Thesis onto the door. 500 years ago, people didn't have the Bible. Uh, people um, could hardly read. M many people could hardly read. And so you had to take a priest's word uh, for what the Bible said and what the church taught. And so if purgatory was part of their teaching of how somebody gains eternal life or is kind of a step on their way there, you would have believed them. 
The second thing is, I think we should remember this, is that death seemed much more imminent to the people living in the early 1500s. Death was constantly on their minds. About 150 years before Luther nailed the theses onto the door at the castle church, uh, the bubonic plague had swept through Europe, killing millions of people. Uh, People would catch this plague, and basically what it would kind of happen is uh, you, would, you would turn black because uh, you would start to kind of et- internally bleed and these blood clots would show up just underneath your skin. And so this is why some of you have heard it called the Black Plague. This plague swept, um, or basically killed entire, entire communities and kingdoms. Many people, if you read kind of the history during this time, thought it was the end of the world. Because of this, people all over Europe were reminded Uh, that death was at their doorstep, and that death was real, and that they should be ready for death. In fact, banners were kind of spread out throughout different cities um, to remind people. One was of an hourglass, and this is what it said. It says, it said, tomorrow, or it says, today it was me, but tomorrow it will be you. These reminders would have been very powerful to people who were seeing and experiencing death on a very regular basis. People weren't dying in nursing homes. Uh, People weren't dying in hospitals. Uh, People were dying in front of their families. Uh, The young and the old were dying together. And, you know, I I don't want to, like, kind of trivialize this or anything, but kind of the image, you know, I get is, have any of you seen, like, Monty Python? All right. And, okay, like, one person. Okay, Okay, there you go. A few more of you are admitting this now. All right. You know, but the guy is going through the city and he's telling people, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. I mean, this is what it would have been like, and they're covered in dirt, and this clean person kind of gallops by, and he said, I wonder who he is, and he says, well, he must be royalty because he's not covered in filth. Um, This is what is going on at, at this time, and this is the reality that is set in, and so unfortunately, too, uh, the church kind of had a marketing campaign where they could sell these indulgences, and they were very effective. Uh, Priests would preach sermons, and they would ask this, can you hear your dead relatives screaming while you fiddle away your money? A jingle was sung, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Luther was outraged by this corruption, and it was fairly rampant. Now, I want to stop here and just kind of let you know Um, that this is not a sermon about how evil the Catholic Church is or the church in general. Uh, My wife's grandparents are Catholic, and they they love Jesus, um, and they are wonderful people. In fact, last week we got home uh, from our our baby being born, and my neighbor, who is also a Catholic, I went over and uh, told her we had the baby, and she was so excited for us, came over and met the baby, and then she disappeared for like three hours, and then came back with enough food to feed uh, 10 people, and um, we even had enough for leftovers. Um, Luther himself was Catholic. Uh, Luther himself did not want to leave the Catholic Church. In fact, he set out to reform the church. Thing is, he believed the Bible, and the Bible teaches that Jesus loves the church. What he believed is that the church has strayed from scriptures And the church is only the true church when it taught people the scriptures. So Luther thought that the church should be teaching people to trust Jesus by giving them their hearts. Heaven was not something that could be bought or earned. And yet, 
This was not the message of the church at the time. For Luther, God desired a life that was being transformed by faith and in obedience to God. So you couldn't buy your way in. Indulgences to Luther were a get-out-of-free-jail card for those who had a lot of money and yet didn't ask people for what God wanted most, the person's heart. He hoped the church could be reformed with that message, but his reforms were not well received. Eventually, Luther's 95 Theses spread all throughout Europe thanks to a newly invented printing press. Luther found himself in a number of debates after it made its way into the hands of the public. Other priests and even the Pope had read it. He refused to back down from any of the statements that he made about the wrongful practice of the selling of indulgences unless somebody could prove to him that the Bible taught otherwise. Those who argued for the selling of the indulgences often argued on the basis that the Pope had approved of the selling of indulgences and Catholic tradition allowed it. Luther said it didn't matter if the Pope approved of the practice or not. The Bible had more authority than the Pope. So he believed that Scripture, not the Pope, or councils, or tradition, should govern the practice of the church. For Luther, the Bible was the final authority on matters concerning the church, not a Pope. So challenging the Pope's authority is actually what gets Luther in the most trouble. It eventually leads to his excommunication in the church in 1720, three years after he nails the theses to the wall of the church. To be excommunicated from the church at this time is basically to be told that you were going to hell. In 1721, Luther was given the opportunity to recant. And so he's given this opportunity to recant. He's in uh, front of this assembly uh, in Worms, Germany. And I just want to read to you what Luther said. He said, unless I am convinced of the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or, by, or for by evident reason that I can believe neither the Pope or the councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive by the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. After this statement, the council dismissed Luther to decide his fate. Now, Luther did not wait around on the council uh, to come up with what they were going to do with him. Luther knew a hundred years earlier a man named John Huss was not only excommunicated for such comments, but that he was killed. And so Luther fled, and the council decided that if anybody were to capture Luther and turn him in, that basically Luther uh, would be tortured and would be killed as well. Luther, thankfully, however, found um, protection under a man named Prince Frederick, who gave him a place to continue to write um, and continue to live. Well, throughout a couple years, Luther had uh, become so popular through his writings and his teaching uh, he had such a large following that the, basically the German authorities and the emperor found it no longer necessary to kill him. This is what actually led to the eventual split of the Catholic Church and started the Lutheran Church and other protesting churches, um, the Protestant Church. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm kind of teaching this this morning, I know this feels more probably like a lecture than a, a sermon uh, this morning, 
is because this is what we are a part of. We are a part of the Protestant church. We have come out of this um, movement and basically have sprung forth of this very act of Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the castle church. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of stop there uh, with the timeline of Luther's life, uh, but there is a lot more. Here's what I want us to focus on this morning as we think of what Luther discovered, or I should say, uh, rediscovered. And um, as Luther began teaching that the, indulgence the indulgences, the selling of indulgences were wrong, he did so because of this very uh, simple reason. He said, we're, we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you can do uh, to earn God's love or salvation or to earn your way to heaven, but rather it's a gift. I um, mentioned that Luther hated God. He hated God because he believed that he had to live up to God's holy standard to earn God's love, and he found it impossible, even when he did what was right, to feel like God approved of him. Because here's the thing, he discovered that half of the things that he did that were right, he wasn't doing them because he actually wanted to do them because they were right, but because he was afraid that to do wrong. And one of the things that he knew, he said, he said God knows my heart. Uh, and he says, my heart is not where it should be even when I am doing right. And so he feared God instead of loving God. And so this tortured him because he thought it was going to be impossible to stand before God because he knew that he never had lived up uh, to God's holy standard if his salvation were going to depend on his works. Now, all of this changed. Uh, his understanding of God's love and salvation all changed when he began meditating on Romans, uh, particularly Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And this is what it says. It says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. After some meditation, this is what he had to say, and I'll unpack kind of what he had to say for us and what it actually means for us. He said, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives of God, namely with the right... Okay, excuse me, I want to start over. I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives of God, the righteous lives... You know, you realize that lives and lives is the same word. Um, yeah. The righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely passive righteousness, which is the merciful, which is the merciful God who justifies by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself with open gates. So here's what Luther discovered, is that God's righteous requirements are not earned by us, but are earned for us. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what God has done when he sent Jesus, who lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and who rose again on the third day to give us a hope that we shouldn't have. We receive Jesus' life, death and resurrection by faith. And by the way, Luther says that faith comes from God also. 
And so what this means for us is that our entire relationship with God is based on grace that we receive by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Grace is a gift. So, when we talk about grace and we're talking about God's love, God's love, God's acceptance, your being ushered into heaven is something that you cannot earn, you cannot buy, and you cannot pray for enough. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's grace. Grace is love that's unearned, and it's just given in spite that you have failed to earn it. So working harder will not make God love you more, nor will it make God love you less. Well, don't Christians have to obey God? Yes, we obey God. But here's the thing. We obey God from the love of God right? Not for the love of God. You get how that's different. So because God first loved us, right, we love and obey God. We don't love and obey God to earn God's love. This is a complete change. So you, you, you can't buy indulgences. You can't serve at the church enough. You can't bake your neighbor uh, enough cookies to earn God's love. God loves you before you do any of that. And God wants you to do all of that because you, he, because you know that God loves you. This is what Luther was teaching. And this was transforming what the church would teach. This, I, I believe, for us, um, should transform who we are. And it's something that it's very important that we should be reminded of as a church, that we too need to be a grace-filled church. And so I began kind of asking myself and just kind of wondering, when people think of not just our church, but the church at large, would they genuinely describe the church as a place of grace? Do, do people come to the church looking for grace, or do they feel like when they come into the church that they're not going to get grace, but rather they're going to kind of be judged uh, by us and the place in which they were at? Philip Yancey has a book called What's So Amazing About Grace?, and uh, he tells of um, a story of one of his friends who is a minister who walks around the streets of Chicago, and his friend basically was telling him about this experience. And what he says is this prostitute had come to him, and he said, this is what he said, he said she was in wretched straits, homeless, sick, and unable to buy food for a two-year-old daughter. And he said this prostitute is sobbing, and she's crying, and she tells this man, this awful thing, that she had actually even been renting out her daughter to men. The pastor is sitting there, and he's talking to her, and um, he asks her, she said, why are you doing this? And she said, I'm trying to support my own drug habit. The pastor says that he could hardly hear um, this uh, without just, like, his heart breaking completely and wanting to walk away. And he realized, too, that um, as he listens that as we all are, as you are, if you ever hear of any child abuse, right, you have to report it. And so he's listening to this, knowing that he's going to have to report this young lady. But then he, he asks her this question. 
he goes, have, had you ever thought of going to a church for help? And he says he will never forget the pure look of shock and naivete on her face when she said, church? Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And this is really interesting because when you read through the Gospels, um, you find people like this prostitute, you find the broken people uh, who typically are attracted to Jesus. The people who don't have it all together um, and don't seem to follow all of the rules are the people that are typically trying to kind of push people away to get to Jesus, to want to be around him. They seem to believe that Jesus really did love them and wanted the best for them. It's not that Jesus didn't tell them to go and sin no more, but that Jesus was there. He was for them, and he wanted to heal them. In his book, Yancey continues to go on, and he says, the one thing that the church can offer, that no one else can offer the world, is the grace of God. That everybody else can do social programs. Everybody else can build communities and have people get together and and build friendships, uh, but only the church can tell people that God loves them and that God's grace is a free gift. And this is needed. Uh, our world is a graceless place. You know, it's easy to look back on, on the church there in Rome and the Roman Catholic Church at that time um, and either just kind of uh, dog the, the church at that time or religion in general uh, but our world is just full of ungrace. Uh, we don't typically natural, naturally give grace to people. We want people to earn our love, to earn our respect, to earn our kindness. All religions besides Christianity actually teach this, that you are going to have to earn your way to climb a ladder, to give you just an example of a few. Um, in Hinduism, right? if you're born into a lower caste system, you are going to have to do enough good works to earn your way into a higher caste system come the next life. Uh, Islam. If you go to an Islamic country, um, you will notice that there are morality police that are walking the streets, and what they are doing, uh, they are trying to make sure that people aren't breaking the Quran. and if you're a woman who is dressed in a way that is offensive or to them ungodly, right, you could be beaten for it. Um, now, religions aren't <laughs> uh, the, the only uh, systems and, and religious people aren't the only type of people who operate um, in an ungraceful way. In fact, humanists, agnostics, and even atheists uh, may be the biggest offenders of this. Take, for example, the Soviet Union or China and these communist governments that if you speak out against them or go against what they teach, you can be killed um, or beaten in front of the public. In fact, uh, because of atheism and really communistic regimes, the 1900s, uh, 400 years after all of this, was one of the deadliest periods, was, was the deadliest period in human history, largely driven by the secularism. Well, I'll tell you one of my biggest fears, right? And one of, I think one of the biggest problems are so-called liberals uh, who throw out the word bigot um, if people disagree with them because they don't want to have a conversation about uh, how life uh, should be lived or 
if people disagree with them. We see that universities often are not open places of discussion. The truth is, is that we just live in a world where there isn't a whole lot of grace. And as the church, we have to be a place that offers the grace of God. And as, pe- as, the, as the people of God, we have to remember that God has offered us so much grace in our own lives. Right? I, I don't know when some of you got saved or how long some of you have been Christians. Uh, um, but like, just do this. Like, think for a moment uh, of who you were and what you did before you came to faith in Christ before God saved you. And God saved you. And God loves you. In spite of all of that, sometimes it's good for us to remember that so that we will offer grace to other people. It sometimes helps me to not just remember like who I was before I became a Christian, but to help me remember all of the times that that I mess up as a believer. And yet God has never turned his back on me. Right? God has never left me. He's never forsaken me. I, I kind of started with this story about this prostitute. Um, recently, I heard a story from my mother-in-law, and they have been down in Houston, and the church that they have been attending has uh, this ministry called Strip Love, and what they've been doing is they've been going into the, uh, the strip clubs, the women have, not the men, um, right? And so they've been going into these strip clubs, and they've been waiting outside these strip clubs uh, for the workers to come in and out. And what they've tried to do over the past couple years is to build relationships with these women. And so through the years, they have gotten to know the names of the women, and their children, and they have celebrated their birthdays and gotten their children gifts um, and just kind of figured out, like, why do you do what you do and let them know that, that God loves them and has been inviting them to church and the Bible studies and just have been loving on these women. And my mother-in-law was telling me, like, this past weekend, um, it was so cool because they were throwing a wedding shower at the church for one of these ladies who had gotten out of the business and had decided to start a family with her husband. Like, that's what grace looks like. That's that's what the church should be about. We want to be a a church full of grace and love. Of course, we don't want to give up the truth. Uh, Martin Luther, when he nails the 95 Theses to the door of the church, he gives a list of truths that he wanted to stand on and he wanted the, the church to stand on. Uh, but the one that I think, there's a number that we could have spent on uh, time on here this morning, but the one I want us to remember is this idea of grace, that we should not be making people earn our love or God's love either. And any time um, that we are telling people that they have to do something to earn our love, uh, we are acting in an ungraceful way. So I want to read just kind of what grace looks like here, and then we're going to pray. Grace is a couple that learns how to forgive each other through the years and stays together because they know God loves marriage. By the way, I know there's a lot of uh, statistics out there that says like 50% of divorces end in marriage. Uh, well, the truth is, is that's pretty much true. Unless, all right, and they, they say this in and outside of the church, and what they really mean by that are those who claim to be Christians and those who don't claim to be Christians divorced at the same rate. But the truth is, is from what we can see, 
uh, that research does show that the couples who attend church on a regular basis, that percentage does come down, which is kind of interesting um, because the churches should be talking about grace, forgiveness, and working through their problems. Grace is a couple who adopts children and gives them a home where they are loved unconditionally. Grace is a father who marries the widow of a divorcee and loves her kids as his own. Grace is a Bible study that welcomes the skeptic and her questions. Grace is the man who forgives his absent father. Grace is a church that welcomes people wherever they are and prays that God does not leave them there. Grace is a God who knows that we are in need of a Savior, so he sent his only begotten Son, and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. A grace-filled church is one that reminds people of this message. Let us pray. Hey, Father, this morning we give you thanks for people like Luther who were willing to die to share the truth of the Scriptures. Father, we pray, too, that we are anchored in your truth and in your love. We pray, Father, that we are reminded today to be full of grace. Father, as we think about your grace, we thank you for forgiving us of so much. You have loved us unconditionally. And you love, you love us, Father, just simply because you do, because you are love. And so, Father, we pray that you give us that kind of heart. We pray, Father, that we learn to love you as we understand how much you've loved us. If there's anyone here today, Father, who maybe um, is kind of like Luther, uh, maybe they don't understand uh, how you can love them or they're trying to earn your love and acceptance and forgiveness. Father, I, I pray that by faith they receive this message that tells them that they are loved by you and that you express that love by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And whoever repents of their sins and turns away from those and believes in you, Father, can receive eternal life. Father, I pray that you just move in somebody's heart and mind right now and that you lead them to faith. Father, in a moment, we're about to take our tithes and our offering. And I, I pray, Father, as we give back to you, that it's an expression of our love for you and what you've done for us. That as we give, we realize that we're not buying anything, Father, but rather that we're giving to a God who has given us everything. We thank you for being in our midst today. And we pray that as we continue to worship and give, Father, that you are very present and real with us. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen.